0: the hum of motors abruptly pierces the desert silence as a line of vehicles maneuvers through the rugged terrain. They are en route to resupply a small coalition peacekeeping force that had been sent to establish this remote Middle Eastern outpost in early 2030. The convoy carries food and water, ammunition, and gasoline. It does not carry people, except for those inside two mine-resistant ambush-protected or MRAP vehicles were executing overwatch protection. Heating intelligence reports that warned the area was saturated with improvised explosive devices, leaders opted to execute the supply mission by using newly deployed unmanned vehicles to maximize warfighter safety. Hunkered down at a nearby airstrip, leaders stare at computer screens closely monitoring the convoy's progress. Suddenly, a computer beeps and a monitor flashes a warning message dust storm is rapidly approaching the area, wind would gust above 20 knots and visibility would be reduced to less than 50 meters. A lively discussion erupts inside the command post. Should the convoy be halted given the degrading conditions? The delay would be dangerous and would create logistical bottlenecks. But could the sensors on board the autonomous vehicles still be trusted to accurately perceive the terrain around them? Or would the convoy strike hazards concealed by the haze? These concerns are quickly assuaged by a lieutenant colonel who had done her homework. She reminds those in the room that robust research had proven that the autonomy could withstand these conditions. Modeling and simulation technology developed by the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center had put these vehicles through a variety of extreme conditions to determine the range in which they could safely operate. Given the approaching conditions, The results of those simulations suggested that the vehicles should slow their speed by 10 miles per hour. If they did so, they could safely proceed. The convoy continues and three hours later, it reaches its destination. The unmanned logistic vehicles are eagerly unloaded by the tired coalition troops, excited to be fortified with new supplies.
1: A major task in developing unmanned ground vehicle systems is creating robust autonomy algorithms that perform reliably in austere communication or environmental conditions. Inclement weather, poor lighting, sensor quality, and surface conditions can all adversely affect the decision-making of an autonomous vehicle putting a mission at risk. Thus the behavior of autonomous systems must be understood and anticipated for these edge-case conditions. This allows mission planners to understand system limits and appropriately deploy the system. However, physical testing of autonomous vehicles is time-consuming, expensive, and potentially dangerous. Even for relatively simple systems, it is not feasible to test all potential scenarios and answer all questions needed to develop robust autonomy that can withstand the dynamic combat environments. Since the mid-2000s, Ertic has been developing a suite of modeling and simulation tools to assist in autonomy development and risk reduction the tools in ertic's Virtual Autonomous Navigation Environment, or Vane, can be configured to operate independently or in co-simulation. Vane can simulate vehicle terrain and sensor environment interactions in a high-fidelity, high-performance computing environment and in real-time desktop-based simulations.
0: I'm Chris Kiefer, and with Megan Holland, this is The Power of Erdic. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Gabe Monroe, a research mechanical engineer at Erdick's Geotechnical and Structures Laboratory. We will talk with Gabe about how Erdics research is enabling the armed forces to develop safer and more robust algorithms to better guide autonomous vehicle development and deployment.
1: Hey, Gabe, good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to this. Can you start out by talking a little bit about how we got here and tell us briefly about Arctic's history of mobility modeling and how we came to be involved in this field?
2: Sure. So in the decades following World War II, we were doing a lot of mobility testing in the soft soil along the mississippi river uh, we have great mud and it, the nice thing about it um, whenever the river floods it resets all the test lanes we've got so you knew
0: the benefits of having great mud right i know right.
2: i know so that all happened well before my time so during that time frame they were doing uh, physical experiments looking at how many times a vehicles could cross different s- strengths of soils and so they start c- generating all this empirical data so in the kind of this 1970s That started rolling into empirical models to help predict how a certain vehicle would behave on certain strengths of soils. And that became the NATO Reference Mobility Model, or NRMM, and that's been used for over 50 years now by the United States and our allies. That's a very useful tool. It can predict top speed for a vehicle in a tactical area or a strategic area of interest, or it can tell you go, no go, based on soil strength and terrain geometry.
0: I interrupt you real quick, just for people who, who may not be familiar. I want to make sure they didn't miss that point. So it's the model NATO model. I mean, this is used by NATO countries around the world was developed because of work at Erdic, Is that right? That is correct.
2: We developed it in partnership uh, somewhat with uh, GVSC our Ground Vehicle Systems Center They were in at, Detroit in Detroit. Yes, they were at the time uh, known as TARDEC and they've kind of re- been uh, renamed. At the time we were Waterways Experiment Station. Sure. And so now a lot uh, of history, a lot of history there. You know, our goal is to understand how the environment impacts vehicle mobility. And for a long time, we really only had to look at how the terrain and the tracks or the wheels interacted. And that was really what impacted vehicle mobility. Mm -hmm. But especially with unmanned ground vehicles, now this is a vehicle platform, a system of systems where you have these modern sensors on there. So you've got LiDAR and GPS and infrared cameras and RGB cameras. So if we're looking at how the environment impacts vehicle mobility, when you're looking at unmanned ground vehicles, it is navigating the world based on how it can perceive and understand the world. So that how the environment impacts the sensors of that unmanned ground vehicles, mm-hmm. you've got to understand how that interaction is playing out as well. So now we've been developing physics-based simulation tools so that we can uh, investigate how that interaction plays out. And you know, so that sensor environment piece is as important as looking at you know how the wheels interact with the terrain.
0: Sure. Building off of that and moving on to unmanned ground vehicles. Tell us about VAIN and why it's important.
2: So as Megan said, uh, VAIN is a suite of tools. It encompasses all the things we need to be able to perform virtual experiments with unmanned ground vehicles, or UGVs. I'm, I'm probably gonna fall back into saying that acronym a lot. So it encompasses tools that let us simulate the sensors, uh, simulate the vehicles. It has the virtual environment that those sensors interact with and those, that those virtual vehicle models traverse. And so those component tools are very useful in answering specific questions for specific parts of the autonomy system. But together, Vane allows us to perform software-in-the-loop simulations or SIL simulations, and that's where the autonomous algorithms really think they are in the real world. They don't really know any different, and so they're... Getting virtual sensor feeds, they're processing that, they're sending commands to virtual vehicles, and then that's navigating that virtual environment.
0: Even though they're in a virtual environment, they're responding as if it was a real-world demonstration.
2: Exactly, exactly. So that allows us to see how the autonomy is going to react to those various conditions or uh, situations that you might be very difficult to experiment with or test in reality. So you can imagine if I've got some multi-ton unmanned vehicle, and I want to know how it reacts to a pedestrian, maybe a child crossing the road in front of it mm. while it's raining. I don't want to do that test in reality. I sure. want to do that in simulation to try and get a handle on, okay, how is the autonomy going to react in this situation?
0: This suite of tools, Vane, was developed by Erdick.
2: Yes. So it, some parts are completely developed in-house. Some of it are off-the-shelf systems that we've incorporated. It's all open source, but the things that make up Vane is... Distributable to the entirety of the DoD, that's one thing that makes it very powerful is that we've developed it in-house. We have the expertise to use it in-house, but we can actually train up partners to use it themselves. We can run simulations, give them the tools to run simulations in parallel with us. And so it really fosters a collaborative environment across the DoD.
0: And I think another important point to make on that is we talked at the beginning of the podcast about the history in in Erdic's history, going back to World War II in vehicle mobility. I mean, this suite of tools is solving a modern problem, but it's building off of the expertise that Ertic has developed since the 1940s.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We're using modern, what most people consider gaming engines. So, uh, Unreal Engine 4 is uh, yeah. one of the tools that we've incorporated into certain... our video game development. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, we can substitute the terrain interactions. So that's actually referencing some of all that empirical data that we have collected over the decades. Wow. Um, so that research that was done post-World War II, during Korea, all that's still valuable today.
1: Sure. I don't imagine there are a ton of people who do this kind of work out there. How did you get involved in this? So that's a,
2: that's a funny story. So my PhD work was actually in heat transfer and energy harvesting through thermoelectric conversion, which is a pretty far field from vehicle and sensor yeah, simulations. So. But the last semester of grad school, uh, I was done with my research. I was done with classes. I was pretty much just finishing up my dissertation, waiting to defend. And I ended up helping out on a Urtic funded project at CAVS. And I guess one thing led to another. And I ended up starting my first day at work at Erdic three days after I graduated. So it was definitely a change of field for me from my graduate work, but I love every day of it now. And, you know, I crack a heat transfer book every now and then, but I'm really (laughs) enjoying where I am.
0: You mentioned CAVS for people. It is basically a partnership that we have with Mississippi State University.
2: Yeah. So CAVS is the Center for Advanced Vehicular Systems, and that's a research center at Mississippi State. And we work very closely with them on several projects. Can you talk about
0: just to kind of back up and and look from the 50,000 foot view. Why does this research matter? Why does the military need robust modeling and simulation for unmanned ground vehicles?
2: Well, I guess let's back up a little bit. You hear a lot in the news about Tesla and Google, and there's obvious interest in the civilian sector in creating unmanned vehicles or mm-hmm. autonomous vehicles mm-hmm. for the roads. And there's all the reasons where you could say better reaction time than humans, doesn't get sleepy, doesn't get distracted, can talk between each other, reducing traffic jams, and all those things. And so there, there's a similar fundamental technology that is being leveraged by Google and Tesla in the military. But, you know, our problems are much harder sure. and much more diverse. So they're operating in a you know, on paved roads with lines. They've always got GPS. Uh, they've got nice lights in the city or whatever. And we have none of that. Sure. <laughs> We're operating off-road. Off we can't you know, assume that we have GPS. Sometimes things are shooting at us. Yes,
0: they can't even assume you're welcome to be there.
2: <laughs> right, right. So you know, if a commander is going to deploy a UGV alongside or maybe in place of manned assets, they're going to have to have the confidence that that UGV can accomplish its mission. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So by using modeling simulations, you're going to be able to explore, like I said, those combinations of scenarios or conditions, and be able to understand the system's limitations and to be able to trust its capabilities. And that's one of the, as I said, one of the great things about Vane is that. Whoever needs to look at specific problems, because unmanned ground vehicle is a very, it's a simple thing to say, but it encompasses a lot of things. Sure. So there's a lots of different problems that different groups really need to investigate. So obviously we can't answer all of the problems for everyone. So if we can give tools to other people and empower them to answer them themselves, we've actually worked on making vein uh, so that we can containerize it in portable virtual machines. So we can package everything up and hand it off so we don't have to go through that installation process and get everything configured. We can actually hand them off a virtual machine that's ready to do stimulations.
1: So what this boils down to then is enabling technology that ultimately saves soldier lives.
2: Absolutely. If you can get the warfighter out of harm's way, robots are expensive, but they're not as expensive as a human life. So the amazing thing about this technology is that it is a force multiplier because you can do things that you couldn't before. At the same time, it reduces the risk to the warfighter.
1: Talk about the future of autonomous vehicles and their growing importance.
2: So autonomy, you know, that's kind of a nebulous term. It's an enabling technology that could be valuable to basically all aspects of ground vehicle combat. Um, So the two main applications include the logistics, as was mentioned in the vignette at the beginning of the episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's also applicable to robotic combat vehicles. So both of those are force multipliers. They reduce, reduce the risk of the warfighter. But as I mentioned, you know there are these sub-applications where you would use autonomy to address specific questions, or tasks, or maybe they're entirely new capabilities. So you could imagine a small tracked robot that was acting in a medevac capability, where you've got a couple of wounded soldiers, and that little robot can go in, pick them up, and bring them out. And you don't have to bring medics into the combat, putting them at risk to get those soldiers out. You don't have to take Uh, warfighters off the front lines to remove their wounded comrades.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, You could have small reconnaissance robots that could infiltrate enemy lines and then set up a persistent surveillance. And again, that's without any risk to any human. So these are all, one of those is replacing an existing capability, and one of those is maybe an entirely new capability. There's obviously technical hurdles that are going to have to be overcome to get us from where we are to where we want to be or where we think we can be or want to go. Uh, But I think once deployed, Autonomy is going to be one of those leaps in military technology that is on par with the cannon or the machine gun or the tank. So each of those led to a major evolution in military doctrine and tactics. And I, I really think autonomous vehicles is going to be the same way.
0: One of the things, Gabe, that we've been talking about is an advantage of modeling and simulation is it gives you the ability to examine edge cases, which are difficult to find in physical tests. Can you explain more about that?
2: Sure. So the paradigm we like to describe is where you're doing thousands or tens of thousands of simulations and you use those to establish kind of this rough functional boundary of the system. And that's what kind of what we mean in edge cases where mm-hmm. you're getting away from the standard operating scenario where, OK, now it's raining really hard or it's almost dusk and it's raining really hard. But simulations are relatively cheap. And if you're using a supercomputer, you can go through hundreds of them at a time. And then from those simulations, you can figure out where the autonomy is struggling. And then from there, you can do a few dozens of, you know, compared to the hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of runs you did in the simulations, you can do dozens of targeted physical experiments in those particular conditions, which helps you further validate what you saw and maybe help really clear up, okay... What's really going on. That's an important part of when you're developing a modeling simulation tool. It's going to let you answer more questions than you could with just physical experiments, but you still need to do those physical experiments because you have to validate your simulations. So you're trying to do simulations to build trust in the autonomy, but you first have to have trust in the simulations themselves. Sure. Um, But overall, being able to do those virtual experiments with the autonomy is going to take portions of that development and evaluation cycle, and it's going to cut those down from months down to maybe weeks.
1: And you utilize the supercomputers that are here at Arctic Information Technology Laboratory. We do,
0: yes. And so building all that, I mean, some of what you're trying to do, I guess, is you have to know where the autonomy will fail in order to build a better system. Is that correct?
2: That, that's a great way to put it. So, you know, we talked about understanding what a UGV is capable of. But the other side of that is knowing when it will fail. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, if you know that, that's going to enable a commander to know where to not employ an autonomous vehicle. But on the kind of the upstream side of that, it can also inform where we need to do additional development um, and where we should focus our efforts so that we can make the system more capable and turn those failures into successes.
1: Sure. What allows you to know that you can trust the virtual environment that you created?
2: So looking at the software in the loop simulations that I mentioned earlier, where the autonomy is, thinks it's in the real world, mm-hmm. there, there are four main components of that uh, software architecture. You've got the virtual world where the simulation is happening. Uh, you've got the virtual sensors that are looking at that world and then passing data based on the sensor type to the autonomy to process. You've got the autonomy, which is really what you're concerned about. Yeah. Uh, And then it processes that information and sends control information to a virtual vehicle model that then navigates the world. And it's all a loop where you have the interactions between the vehicle and the terrain. You've got the interaction between the environment and the sensor that's connected to the autonomy. Mm -hmm. And since the autonomy is the part that you really want to answer questions for, you need the other three, the virtual world, the virtual vehicle and the sensor models. You need those to be realistic and accurate, so they aren't introducing problems into your experiment and confusing your results. Yeah. I guess I'll, I'll talk about how we build that trust in those, those three components and kind of the control variables, if you will. Yeah. So for the virtual environment, we talk about three different types of virtual environments. You've got the geospecific, where you, you know, you've created a virtual twin of a real-world place. So we actually go out and we'll collect LiDAR to get our accurate geometry. We'll collect textures that we will then normalize. Because you want to be able to simulate in various lighting conditions, you need the textures to not have. So you can imagine if it was a bright, sunny day Mm -hmm. and this windowsill is creating a harsh shadow underneath it. Then you do a simulation where you want it to be overcast. Well, if you haven't processed that texture correctly, that shadow from when you collected the data is still gonna be there, even though you're trying to simulate very overcast
0: lighting conditions. interesting.
2: We'll also go out and collect soil strength data so we can attribute the terrain correctly to interact with the vehicle. And since when we collect LIDAR, we can't actually collect LIDAR of everything. We're usually limited to the roads just based on how the collection system, we actually partner with CHL on that. Uh, We'll also incorporate off-the-shelf GIS data. So that's a lower resolution than we can get from the LIDAR, but we can get the kind of the full extents of the area. And we'll use satellite images to tell us where this vegetation is. Then we're bringing in vegetation models and Mm -hmm. we're We actually work with EL to get us the parameters of the vegetation, how dense it is.
0: That's, of course, Erdics environmental laboratory. Right,
2: right. So there's a lot that goes into building an accurate and realistic virtual world. We also have what we call a quasi-geospecific, where we're creating a replica of a real-world location, but that we can't actually or don't have collected data. So that's just going to be based off of satellite imagery and remote sensing data that can be useful for quick projects where you don't have the time or maybe the funds to go do a collect. You could imagine you could also potentially use that type of pipeline for places where you can't get to, and you still need to make a virtual representation of that location. We also have what we call geotypical scenes or environments where it's not really a real place, but it is representative of a particular ecosystem or biome or place in the world. And those are more experimental sandboxes where we can really ramp up, like, let's see if it's twice as dense of vegetation or what if it was twice as hilly and you're exploring all these parameters to really explore those edge case scenarios yeah. for the autonomy. So that's on the virtual environment side. Uh, once you get to the vehicles that are going to navigate that, we actually will use performance data from, you know, Aberdeen Provings Grounds or you know, other testing organizations in the army that we've got Acceleration curves. We've got engine specifications. We've got braking data. All these things that the real vehicle that we're trying to replicate, we know how it behaves in the real world. So we actually have virtual instantiations of those different tests they do at the real testing grounds with the real vehicle, and we'll you know spend a week or two calibrating our vehicle model to make sure that okay when we go over this half round and the suspension you know responds to that, does the shock curve that come out of that match what they actually got out at Aberdeen. And then for the sensors, we'll use manufacturer data to understand if you're looking at an RGB camera, there's obviously a field of view and there's an aperture and those types of things. For a LIDAR, you know how many beams it has when it's sending out the lasers to get the point and generate Mm -hmm. the point Mm -hmm. cloud. So we don't have the hardcore test data like we would with a vehicle because A lot of these are proprietary sensors, and they're not just going to give you that information. But you can do validation tests in simulation where you're making sure that you see the same errors that you would expect in the real world. And that's really that's a key thing: is you want to replicate the data that a sensor would send autonomy. You also want to replicate the errors
0: that sensor would send the
2: autonomy, because you don't want to give it just this perfect sterile version of reality that it you know performs great on, but then when you go out in the real world. Well, there's dust on the lens or this building was kind of clipping through that laser beam and now you're getting this mixed pixel where you think there's something closer to you and it's not. You want to replicate reality and reality is messy and there are errors. Yeah. Um,
0: and That you've makes got it more realistic, right?
2: Exactly. Exactly. So once we're, once we're done with that process, we've got the, let's say, the geospecific virtual environment that replicates a real place. We've got the validated vehicle model and then we've got the validated sensor. And then at that point... You trust three of those four things, and you can just test and do experiments with that fourth, the autonomy itself.
0: I guess one of the tools in the Vane suite is the environment sensor engine. Can you talk about that and the capabilities it offers?
2: Yeah. So as the name implies, the environment sensor engine, or ESE, uh, is the Vane tool that handles simulating the sensors and their interactions with the environment. And that includes weather effects. And so that lets us look at how... The sun or the rain or dust or you know whatever, how that's going to impact the sensor's ability to perceive the world and then what information or errors or maybe lack of information it's going to be able to provide the autonomy and you know what's the autonomy going to have it at its disposal to make navigation decisions. Another way we can use ESE is we also have the ability to generate synthetic data to help train autonomous algorithms, not just test them or evaluate them. So just a brief background on autonomous algorithms. If you're talking about something that can detect an object or classify an object and be like, you know, that is a cat, that is a dog, that is a tree, that is a guy with a gun.
0: Mm-hmm. you know,
2: It doesn't just know that. It's all math behind the scenes. And what you do is you train it. That's the, the technical term where you basically are giving it images and you're giving it the answer key where you said, this is a cat, this is a dog, this is a tree. And it looks at hundreds or thousands of those images. And eventually you can give it an image that it's never seen before. And it can say, that's a car. Huh. That's a stop sign. So as you can imagine, generating thousands or tens of thousands of images that you have to give it the answer key to, if you're doing that by hand, that is very labor intensive, very sure. time consuming. For the army, that's, that would be difficult to do, especially since we're using, we're interested in object classes that are not seen in the civilian world. So we right. can't just use open source data sets. Uh, and we don't have the ability like Google. I don't know if you've noticed any time that you do a CAPTCHA. You remember back, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago where CAPTCHAs were text, so what that was doing was you were you were helping transcribe old out-of-print books. What does
0: well, it, it capture?
2: So, uh, yeah, so that whenever you put in information or try and log into a website and then you have to do the thing that says, I am not a robot. Gotcha. Well, now you're saying, if you notice, click all the boxes that says stop sign. Yeah. Or click all the boxes that is a crosswalk. Well, you're, you're helping label data that will inform autonomous driving algorithms because you, the human, are creating the answer key for those huh. uh, test really? data sets. Yes. So huh. thank you for contributing to the I advancement no of society. <laughs>
0: That's why they're all road related. Yes. I never thought about it.
2: Yes. So we, we don't have that uh, resource to get millions, tens of millions of people to log in and tell us this is a tank. A military this, vehicle, this is yeah, a military yeah, yeah, all that kind of things. So with ESE, we can actually generate synthetic images. Since we, it's physics based ray tracing. We can change the lighting conditions. We can do, put different object classes in the environment. And since it's a simulation, you know, we kind of have like a God's level knowledge of what is in the simulation. So we can actually generate training images where we have pixel level accuracy of this is the tree, this is the road, this is the grass next to the road. And then we can use that to jumpstart the training process for an autonomous algorithm. We, I think we've got one or two publications where we look at that. There are other people other than just Ertic looking at this. And in general, you don't want to only rely on synthetic images but you can introduce entropy into your overall data set that you really couldn't achieve with just manually labeled real-world images.
0: Wow. How much are y'all collaborating with other ERTIC labs on this effort?
2: It's definitely a very multidisciplinary project. So Geotechnicals Structures Laboratory, GSL, uh, that's where the core of the development is happening and has happened. And that's mainly because Mobility Systems Branch is in GSL, and that's
0: I've been doing all the work we talked about back
2: since World War II. II. But we also work with the Cold Regions uh, Laboratory to look at the cold effects and incorporating snow and ice models. Uh, We work with the Information Technology Laboratory. As we mentioned earlier, we use the HPC a lot. And they help us make sure that the synthetic training data we're producing with ESE is actually useful to various algorithm architectures. We work with Environmental Laboratory on developing scenes from the vegetation perspective. And we actually, we've recently worked with the Geospatial Research Laboratory on their Assured Position, Navigation, and Timing project. I think that was featured in the May
0: episode. Okay, yeah, sure sure was. So y'all were involved with that, the the Ricky Mazera project.
2: Just, just... Tangentially, but we we have been collaborating with them to provide them some simulation products.
0: Sure. And then we actually mentioned this effort back on, I guess it was the June episode, which was on ship simulation. And we talked about some of the collaboration that, of course, is the Coastal and Hydraulics Lab project. But you, will, you and, and Dr. Keith Martin, who we had on here, like I said, just a couple months ago, you know, he talked about how he's been working with some of your tools to kind of take the simulation from the ship and then bring that on land and look at vehicle unloading patterns and so forth.
2: It's been really great to work with Keith. Because, you know, he's got the ship simulator, so they have the water side, we have Vane, which is the land side. And to be able to bring those two tools together, to bring a new capability to bear, to look at one of the most complex environments that you could try to perform simulations in, I think is, that's one of the reasons I really love my job. And I'm really happy that we can support both the soldier and the sailor in the, that endeavor.
1: And this is something that we've really been trying to drive home about Erdic. and that's that we have such a wide range of specialties here that we have subject matter experts in house that we can pull from when we have a project that needs all these different types of expertise.
2: Right. I mean, where else in the world are you going to get some under the same roof, get somebody that does wave modeling and can do ship simulation, and then a team that does sensor simulation and knows all about terror mechanics and ground vehicle simulation, that's not going to really happen in the same organization anywhere else.
1: Tell us more about your partnership with the Ground Vehicle Systems Center.
2: So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that partnership goes back between Ertic and GVSC to before we were just Wes and TARDIC. Most of the Army robotics programs I mentioned earlier, us uh, supporting, those are actually executed by GVSC. So we make a lot of trips to Michigan and we have very close working relationships with multiple groups at GVSC, both on the uh, physical experiment side with the physical vehicles and development. And they, they have some modeling simulation teams as well that we work uh, alongside. In general, they're going to handle the physical prototyping and system integration for these prototype unmanned ground vehicles, and we're going to be the ones that provide the simulation architecture to support their development and evaluation cycles, as I mentioned, trying to reduce those timelines. That requires close collaboration to ensure that we've accurately modeled their systems and that our tools can effectively answer those specific questions they need addressed. And one thing that became very evident last year is that the ability to do virtual testing is extremely valuable during a pandemic.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh,
2: so I think that uh, played a part in the Vane team. Uh, we actually received the 2020 Army Modeling Simulation Award for experimentation as part of our contributions to some of the Army robotics programs.
0: Wow. Can these modeling and simulation technologies also help other branches of the armed forces?
2: Absolutely. Beyond the collaboration with the Coastal Hydraulics Laboratory for the amphibious operations, ESE as a you know just a pure standalone tool, it's really agnostic to what platform a sensor is attached to. So it's conceivable that it could be tweaked to running co-simulation with MNS tools that were designed for unmanned watercraft or unmanned aircraft. And the synthetic training data that we can produce with ESE, that's going to be valuable to any algorithm that relies on sensor data from one of the sensors that ESE covers. So that's primarily LIDAR and uh, GPS, RGB cameras. We've got some thermal imaging capabilities. We're working to improve that. We've got an IMU sensor modeled in ESE.
0: And there are various instantiations of each of those big sensor types. You can see all the applications of this technology and and really is, as as Megan said earlier, I mean, this is directly saving soldier lives and, and will have an impact through the years.
2: Yes, it's, and that's, I think everyone who comes to URDIC has a enjoys a job satisfaction and a sense of purpose because you know what we do feeds into keeping the warfighters safe. But I, I'm a little prejudiced, maybe, but I think what we're doing with Vane and trying to improve uh, autonomous vehicles and uh, get those into the field faster because we're able to accelerate that development cycle. I don't know. I, I wake up excited to go to work because I really, I really feel like this is really impactful
0: and really important. That's awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks,
1: Gabe. Erdic's suite of modeling and simulation technologies allows engineers to improve autonomous algorithms by evaluating their behavior in a virtual environment. It enables safer, faster, and more comprehensive testing for a broader range of conditions, giving developers more information on how the algorithms will operate in edge case scenarios. This leads to more robust algorithms and better unmanned vehicle performance, ultimately saving warfighter lives while also increasing their combat effectiveness.
0: The Power of Erdic podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Follow Erdick on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Ertic podcast in all major podcast players. Please subscribe and be sure to leave us a five-star review visit powerofurdickpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at Podcast at usace.army.mil. That's all we have time for today. We'll see you next time.